Hey friends, if this is your first time listening to the Spillway podcast, we encourage you to start at the prologue and work your way up to this sequential episode. If you choose to forge on despite this plea, keep these four things in mind. First, we are a serial. Our work is relational, and the beginning episodes are about building trust, familiarity, and shared frameworks and contexts. And also, white people talking to white people about white people things is a newer concept for a lot of folks. We don't want to push people into the deep end. So please, save yourself the headache. We'll be here when you're caught up. Two, stay in your own lane. We build space to examine, critique, hold, and love white people as we navigate pushback and relapse in the mechanics of white supremacy and white shame within white culture and white culture alone. And that's however much we can in the fluidity of culture. Three, we're in the combined fabric of destiny. Our humanity, as Dr. King defines, is interrelated. Everyone is caught in an inescapable network of mutuality tied in a single garment of destiny. Whatever affects one directly affects all indirectly. I can never be what I ought to be until you are what you ought to be, and you can never be what you ought to be until I am what I ought to be. This is the interrelated structure of reality. That's point one. Point 3.5, we are a piece of the broader racial justice movement. We're not trying to divert resources nor claim that we're a one-stop shop. Being in cross-cultural community, educating ourselves, and being in good relation is unquestionably vital to our work. This show is about white people, cleaning and mending our own section of the fabric and the work we need to do before, during, and after showing up in shared spaces. And lastly, one right way. This form of grounding empathy, compassion, patience, and understanding at the core of white culture may or may not work for everyone. That's okay. There are other resources out there. We all share the same goal as beautifully defined by Adrienne Marie Brown to create a world where everyone experiences abundance, access, pleasure, human rights, dignity, freedom, transformative justice, peace. We long for this. We believe it is possible. We're trying this approach, but that doesn't mean that it's the best or right approach for you. If it doesn't apply, let it fly. And with that, for better or worse, we began entering the spillway. Hello. Yeah. Put mascara on my bottom lashes because I didn't think I was going to cry. That was very beautiful. Thank you. Isn't he wonderful? I mean, I don't know if I've ever felt in the presence of someone that just embodies love but not in a weird fake way, like, <laughs> which happens a yeah, lot. Right. Like there's just so much authenticity that comes with each syllable, which yeah. is just bizarre. I know. I just like, I don't even know what to do with myself. Like my face hurts because I was smiling so hard. And then like, I was like, some of I will have to listen to this again because some of what he was saying I didn't even catch because I was trying not to cry. Mm. So I was like, a mess. Just. Mm-mm. Fred's at a bar here, huh? Fred's Fred, at a bar. Fred <laughs> made my life simultaneously more beautiful and more complicated. Right. Right. It's really not complicated. I just, you know. Well, it makes it complicated because we've we have actually gone into relationships or situations that we now currently find ourselves in that are conditional. Right. And so we're like, oh, how do I break free of that condition and just love you, accept you, value you at your base? Just because you are. Yep. Oh my gosh. I can't function like this. It's like shitting your pants, but with your face. (laughs) (sighs) You know what I'm super conscious of too? Sure, what's that? White women tears. 
Why? Because I heard about how much it was hated so much. Not to be like, oh, poor me. But like, you know what I mean? Like on social media, like I heard, I was like, oh shit, I got to rail that shit in. And then I'm like, but I am who I am. Yeah. It's a person I cry all the time. Uh, <laughs> right. Okay. All right. So we're going mm. back to the tap. Welcome to the Spillway Podcast. I'm Lauren. And I'm Jenny. We believe three things. Hurt people can hurt people. White people are hurting. And our healing is possible. This is a podcast devoted to understanding the complex nature of living as white people in America. Without supremacy or shame. A few months ago, I started an organization, The Spillway, around supporting white people to work through perpetrator-induced traumatic stress or pits and intergenerational trauma. And I offer this service with the acknowledgement that healing work is merely one mechanism within a larger network required to sustain our collective movement towards racial justice. I seek to grow services available rather than redistribute where we put our efforts and funding. And to get this message out there, I've asked one of the most compassionate, ferociously tender, hilarious, and incredibly smart humans I know, Jenny Skinner, to join me on this podcasting journey. Jenny and I come from similar yet separate backgrounds, and importantly, we offer incredibly different perspectives, sometimes just by who we are as people, and other times by the very different identities that we hold. But we're both committed to building compassion, understanding, empathy, and patience into the present and future of whiteness and white culture. We can't change the past, but we can change the future through the actions we take today. And we do that by trying to embody the work of James Baldwin, Sonia Renee Taylor, Kazuhaga, Resma Menikum, and Kai Cheng Tom, well, and countless others asking for white people to, in so many words, get our shit together. Since starting the spillway, there's been consistent feedback, sometimes within the same space that white people are engaging this work with closed hearts and closed minds. We know that attempting to be vulnerable and consenting to learn in public is incredibly terrifying work, and yet we have to start somewhere. Conversations of race and racism aren't going away anytime soon. And given our incredibly different places in the world, we're trying to create a middle ground where people can get together and talk and create action around the paradox of being white in the U.S., where we are simultaneously the perpetrators and the victims of race and racism. We seek to embody the work of countless activists of color who have been calling white folks to seek our own healing around race and racism. So here we are, two white people committing to the work of individual and collective healing around race and racism for white people. Healing ourselves is no one's responsibility but our own. Let's heal together and grow to stop the impacts of race and racism in the lives of people of color and our lives as well. Welcome to our podcast. In social services, we often look at solving problems one of two ways. The first and the most common is through supportive services. A problem has happened and we're trying to fix the problem. And we try to fix it by one, making sure that the client is physically, emotionally safe following the problem. And two, by supporting the client with a specific skill or tool needed to confront the problem again. Like let's use homelessness as an example. Supportive services make sure that people experiencing homelessness have a roof over their heads in shelters, temporary housing, or crisis centers. Then some programs have employment, education, and job training programs to assist with finding and sustaining an income. And there are variations of this model all over the country. And what I've grossly generalized in two sentences is far more complex, but the core of what happens is there. And yet, without trying to prevent homelessness from existing, this cycle of supportive services continues over and over again. 
So how do we truly make homelessness a thing of the past? How do we permanently prevent homelessness? And to figure that out, we have to figure out what the real problem of homelessness is. And it's actually money, it's income, it's capitalism. The most successful transitional housing programs in the country supplement clients who have experienced homelessness before in their programs by paying their rents for months, if not years. They pay people's rents or they own the buildings outright. And this helps the clients build savings, build income, and build credit. These programs work where capitalism is essentially put on pause. In 1987, our guest, Fred Jealous, founded Breakthrough Men's Community, a nonprofit organization to, quote, provide men with the skills to free themselves from non-productive, painful, or abusive aspects of their lives. What if, Fred asked, by helping men, the impacts of sexism and cis-heterosexism would subside not only in the shared culture, but also for men who are conditioned and trained into a culture of harm? What if there were a community of men dedicated to making real change in the quality of men's lives? The mission statement for the Breakthrough Men's Community was something that I used when thinking about creating the mission statement for this spillway. So I'd like to share that with you here. The Breakthrough Men's Community empowers all men to participate fully and confidently in building deeply meaningful relationships and connected lives. The Breakthrough Workshop is a guided life-changing exploration where we work together, hands-on, to tackle the challenges all men face. The foundation of this is the Breakthrough Men's Community Education Program. The natural extension of this commitment brings us to the following. Promote clear and positive thinking about ourselves, others, and the world. Celebrate uniqueness and break free from restrictive rules imposed by society. Create community support systems and encourage all people to act as leaders, allies, and advocates. And act in conjunction with other like-missioned organizations. Fred's been sharing this life for the past 55 years with the incomparable and Todd Jealous and has since retired from his role in Breakthrough as the organization continues on. He's been a teacher from preschool to graduate schools. He loves to garden, read and write, and you should see how his face lights up when he gets to talk about his family. Fred, welcome. Thank you so much for joining us. Wow, and thank you for that introduction. It's something to hear that read back. <laughs> Like, whoa. <laughs> yeah. So thank you. So our first question, um, Fred, is you said that your starting place for breakthrough was the belief that the mainstream raising of boys in the United States is socially sanctioned child abuse. Um, what are we missing when we raise boys in the US? I think we're we're well. I think we're missing how normalized the abusive treatment of little boys is, how institutionalized it is, how so we're just, um, in, in terms of the emphasis on sports and militarism and toughening up little boys, the idea that they, that vulnerability, weakness, and fear are taboo things to experience and show. You experience them, you'd better keep them to yourself because there's not gonna be any resources that are gonna be forthcoming when you show vulnerability, fear, self-doubt, weakness. It's deeply, deeply ingrained right from the beginning. And if you wanna see a grown-up man uh, reveal his hidden hysteria, just ask him to explore the terror that he carries about exposing feelings of weakness and helplessness and powerlessness. Those are absolutely taboo. In fact, they're not even considered feelings after a certain point. They're considered a kind of subterranean reality that you don't wanna go near. Mm. So if you begin to experience them, you're gonna flip into 
some sort of depressed, aggressive, angry, um, withdrawn behavior. Because there are no, I mean, you've learned very, very early on, there's no place for that. It's, and and that's, that carries not only fear, it's not only fear of that, but it's the shame that you're experiencing it. So you learn to become obedient to a role and not your own humanity. And that's the way, that's the only safe way to be in the world. Wow. It's more complicated than that, but that's the place to start. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my. Yeah. But you were talking, you used the word taboo a couple of times, and I'm, and I'm wondering how we work with taboos in, in a social space or in a, how do how do we unlearn that socially? You know, it's, it's a, I, um, I interviewed some of the breakthrough graduates who've been around a, a long time because my, um, I tend to be a harsher critic of my own work than anybody else because I'm I'm looking for the next step in the evolution. So I sit in a pretty, um, you know, in a pretty critical place. And it's interesting what everyone said is um, the men are invited to have physically and emotionally intimate experiences with each other as part of the workshop. And they're paced into that very gradually. For example, um, when I say gradual, I, I have to tell the leadership team before the workshop, all right, you guys, no touching each other. Because they're generally, when they're engaging, they're very affectionate and appreciative of each other. That's kind of the tone of the being together in community. But if you do, I, and we've actually had this happen, when you do an introductory workshop, if the guys who come see the leaders standing around holding each other or sitting close together or demonstrating any kind of closeness, then they assume it's a gay group and they run out the door. This is like a gay cult or something like that. <laughs> I mean, sadly. And, and um, so what the men that I interviewed told me was, we, it, it's the intimate experiences with men that you would not ordinarily engage with that breaks up both the homophobia and the racism and the classism. It disrupts the pattern in a very safe and intimate way. So it was interesting that they saw, um, you know, someone might say, oh, I, you know, I'd, I'd never had any contact with a black person before. And now I'm sitting there, active listening with him, holding his hands and discovering this is one of the most intelligent human beings I've ever met. And it breaks. So it, it that's unusually intimate, also open. And everybody in the room is sharing their fears. So it's that kind of a climate that allows for the shifting that you were asking about, Lauren. Am I answering the question? Oh, for sure. For sure. I think one of the things that I'm trying to also hold is the, the idea that why can't we just let boys be boys? Let men be men. We don't have to do this work. Why, why is it important for men to be able to be in close contact with each other, to be vulnerable. What's its value? Well, you're asking what's the value of intimacy? Mm -hmm. Certainly makes the world a lot safer for women, for starters, because very often men are using women, whether it's emotionally or physically or sexually, to get relief from the isolation and fear. The, the less fear you have of other men and other men's bodies, the more grounded you are in your own sense of worth, then the less likely you are to need to use another human being 
to get relief from the isolation that's caused by that, you know, combination of feelings. Lauren, you and I talk a lot about the the power of platonic touch. Um, and that I feel that came to my mind when you were talking about that, that um, these men living in a world where the only touch that is allowed is, is, you know, attached maybe to sexuality um, or a sexual need um, and being able to touch someone else in a way that's not tied to that um, might have, might have a lot of power to it. It does. It, it, it does. And when you, and when, and when it becomes safe, um, gradually over, you know, the, the workshop is long for a reason, because you have to gradually walk people into, you provide opportunities for new behavior, you know, and affection and appreciation ultimately are irresistible, you know, from a point of view of love. But when you put people in a small group that's different every week, and they offer each other physical support during the time when it's their time to receive attention, then eventually people just kind of slide into it, always welcoming the no. The no is as good as a yes. So it's not manipulative. It's just like, oh, and then that longing that's all that's deep in the cells of us all for that kind of loving attention calls forth new responses if you give people time and don't manipulate them or make it, you know, uh, insist on it. Or you know, if you just keep welcoming, it's like Rumi's quote, you know, well, there's one quote from Rumi about, um, welcome, 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 welcome you 10,000 times if that's what it takes for you to come to the world of love, something like that. I'm paraphrasing, but it's that kind of repetitive welcoming that allows for the, both the depth of the shifting and the shifting. And the people that I interviewed last night talked about, you know, um, it was the it was the the uh, the touch and the intimacy and the sense I'm sharing. You we're sharing our fears with each other and our struggles with each other, honestly, across all kinds of class and racial and or, or sexual orientation lines. And eventually you start to see the person separate from the, the layers. Not that you still don't have noise in your head or, or fears to work out, but there is a shift that they all said takes place. I get going, I keep wondering if I'm just drifting off the topic. <laughs> no, I'm not. For God's sake, stop me if I can. I'm just drinking it in. Yeah. Okay. All right, you'll tell me, Lauren, right? Oh, yeah. Oh, Jenny, yeah, we, we'll tell you. I, I'm wondering. Too far afield. Fred, when, when you were talking about welcome, welcome, welcome and love and Rumi's quote and this kind of repetitive um, exposure to love, what that can do to shame. One of the things that I've been thinking about in preparation for our conversation was uh, I was trying to figure out who was a better educator, shame or love. Mm. And I don't know if I know that answer, but I, I think in hearing you talk about love, I wonder if love wins out in your answer. Yes. Um, and to, to, you know, to different degrees, to depending on your, your history. I mean, if I'm looking at, you know, watching people go through, break through. I mean, one of the most dramatic, and it was a common example for men who had experienced a lot of humiliating abuse in their childhood, they ended up hooking up with partners who were, all, who were humiliating. So they lived in this paradigm, people who love you abuse you. I mean, they had that confusion in their heads with, of, with abuse and love were linked. And as they would move through the 
breakthrough and get a little bit more self-worth on board from participating in the community and the exercises, you know, considering the possibility that you've always been good enough to love or something like that. They suddenly, they, the, the, the link between abuse and love starts to break apart. And suddenly being, you know, having someone who says they love you, abuse you, becomes intolerable. So that that's a, and I saw that often. I saw that often, just tragic. I mean, the kinds of abuse that, and of course, you love me because you have sex with me, right? So you can say whatever you want, do whatever you want, humiliate me, abuse me, but just provide the relief from it too. And that's, that, I mean, it was, it was, it, that was rough to witness, you know, and also just for us all to be honest about how much it's linked up for us. How much do we supposed to be able to take? How much mistreatment are we supposed to be able to take as part of our manhood? It seems like it's supposed to be limitless. <laughs> right i feel like that's that's part right. of the, the abuse that right. you are supposed to not have any kind of response or reflection as to what you can't do you're supposed to be invincible right i can take it i can take it i can take it mm -hmm. yeah yeah how how do you feel the societal definition of what you know in quotes a man is affects white men in particular and then how does that affect how they approach race and racism? Well, I think the nuances in it for each man are going to be slightly different. Sure. But I do think in the world, I mean, um, you know, part of what happens in Breakthrough is the white men begin to acknowledge that they are racist, that they have, they have internalized it. And it's across uh, the, the board. For the, not across the board, but for the most part. For the most part. Because of the honesty that unfolds, you know, because to men of color, it's no surprise that they carry racist garbage in their head. And so there's a little, there's a little bit of space once you have done a lot of sharing about fear or once the, you know, for example, um, you know, a man of color has admitted about his the mythology that he carries around about you know handsome white guys with money mm. you know he one when uh, i remember in one situation there was a, a 26 year old you know white male addicted to pornography drove a bmw convertible dressed well and he was impotent he could not have a relationship with a real human. Oh. And he, when he admitted this in class, there was an, an, an African-American man with a very rough background. He said, what? My whole worldview has been turned upside down. I thought you guys had it made. I thought you got whatever you wanted. And you're telling me you hate yourself? Mm -hmm. How, you know, now what? You know, it's like, what does it all mean? Right. You know, if if this is what's real, what's and and that that actually raised a lot of questions for guys who had very very issues about materialism and thinking that was the solution. And so I think the um, the compete win dominate paradigm that men are raised with, that, um, you know, you're supposed to be a success object. You're supposed to be seen as a success. That will get you a really good sex object. Mm. So you're an object looking for an object. So to that extent that that, that, that works out, you're an object to yourself. To the extent that that works out, there is, there is this presumption of, there's this fear of the other. Hmm. There's the fear of the other, the othering mm -hmm. that goes on. 
and then anyone who's identified as other. And so I think that that can be, that can be a, um, racial, it can be class-based, can be appearance-based, can be, you know, able-bodied based. Mm. It's difficult to get really inside of it. it it's because the, the um, it combines up with, you know, I'm not going to admit my fear, so I'm going to go to judgment of. Ah, okay. I, I, you know, judgment is a much more comfortable place for me to be in than admitting that I'm feeling afraid. Right. So I'm going to do what I do to myself, which is I'm going to turn him into an object, mm. this other, if I can qualify him as other, turn him into an object and judge him rather than, yeah, rather than look at, rather than get underneath my own treatment of myself as an object of the male role. That makes okay. the naughty, yes. that made some sense. Yeah. Yes. No, it does. It does. It yeah. does. I'm just, I'm also just trying to fit all of that in here in terms, you know, like it's all so interconnected, all of yeah. that. Um, in, in the key practices of BMC, um, there's mention of a boy who needs healing and nurturing. Um, how much of that healing that's needed with that boy um, is related to race for white men? I have to take that on a case-by-case basis. Okay. Because there are, there are stories of the boy. Um, there are stories of boys being separated from friends who were of color. There are stories of boys, you know, white boys having been beat up by boys of color. Right. So they're terrified from that kind of violent experience. Right. Um, a lot of it, most of it, I would say, is in the process of the workshop where you've got, um, you know, men of color. And I mean, it's, I would say it's the workshop, probably 75% you know, white men who identify as heterosexual, the Rex is, is a mixture of, sure. you know, and just because that's where we live. Um, so the isolation, there's also isolation is another fact. There weren't any kids of color where I grew up. Right. I never had any interaction with them. So I just know the crap that's in my head. Mm-hmm. Um, so this, it, it, so this, everybody has a slightly different story, but it's isolation, you know, abuse and separation would probably be the three different themes. This has made me wonder if there's any inherent character or trait that's associated with men. Is there anything that's inherent when you say, oh, or uh, you, you meet a, a man for the very first time, someone male identified you, oh, then you automatically do this. You are inevitably this. Is there something like that? Well, I know this may sound simplistic, but, you know, I think underneath it all, we're built for love, you know, as part of the fabric of life. And, you know, the, the, the disappointment that our childhoods weren't about that, that they were about a training us into a role is profound. Mm. I've never seen such rage come out of a man as when we get to that point after, you know, 30 weeks and weekends of being together, where we look at early hurts and sexuality. And, and, we, ha- and we, we, we raise the question about when is rage sacred? When is it a sacred? When is that anger and rage that you feel sacred? Well, it's when it's about the time you really were helpless and powerless, when you were dependent on the big people for survival. And they told you that it wasn't about love. This is about you being a little man, being obedient, 
not making us uncomfortable, uh, making uh, the adults superior in value, you know, the adultism and the, all that stuff. And um, in that exercise, we say, uh, you can't stop because you feel tired. You can't, we're, we're gonna go past tired because tired is where the depression and the hurt and the everything else. And when you see the, the, the uh, physical, the, the, the physicality and the stuff put into the fury about, you know, why was my childhood not about love? And that, so that would be, that's a long way of getting at the answer, but I think, you know, we're part of the fabric of life and life is, you know, life's happening and it's feeding us and it's inviting us to be a part of. And here we are in this hyper-individualistic, isolated role. How do we come back? How do we, how do we build that connection or that community uh, in, an, in an open or online space? Um, like I think about with Breakthrough, one of the really lovely pieces is that people were invited into the workshop um, and it was a, a designated physical space that people got to go to. Yes. Uh, that you could enter, a, or you could pass a, th pass a threshold and say, okay, well, now I'm here. Now I can be present. And when I think about uh, how individualized we've become through social media or through an online presence, uh, our community sometimes is in our phone, it's in our hands, um, even though we don't get across some sort of threshold. And I'm wondering how, or if it's possible to translate those experiences uh, into building community digitally. Don't think you can go as far as, I mean, I think men are so isolated and so desperate for attention and support that getting it digitally, I mean, Breakthrough has discovered that, you know, going on to Zoom and doing whatever the guys are now doing, um, which is significantly, I mean, it, it's taken the easy parts of what I did. Right. Um, you know, they're all positive and helpful, but just being in a place where you can get support and be honest, having that level of community is so different than what most men have that although it doesn't go as far as I would like it to in, in, it still is a break from the isolation. You get a break from it. And that can encourage men to keep going. And, and I guess people, I'm, I'm pretty kinesthetically oriented too. So, um, I know for some people, the visual and the verbal is, you know, that's where they connect. So they might get, you know, they might get more out of it than I would guess. In thinking about space, though, Fred, I'm also wondering why, why the, that space is needed given the social power that men have. If men, if men have access to all of the leadership positions, to decision-making power, to choice. Why is an additional space required when the whole world is proverbially, proverbially their oyster? Why is, why is an additional space needed for men to work through this? Because they're living conditional lives. What does conditional lives mean? Meaning that their value is conditional on their performance and status. And that's a bad thing. Yes. Well, it, it's, it's, if you don't know, I mean, if it's for fun, you know, if I'm, if I'm, if I'm engaging in, in an activity because I enjoy it and it's an expression of who I am and um, that's one thing, but if any hope of being seen as good enough, lovable, um, worthwhile, having value is dependent on my performance, then everything is about my performance. You know, I'm an object to myself. So if I'm seen as a quote success object 
or a successful success object. <laughs> you know, then I have a certain kinds of entitlement. And you see that. I mean, look at the stories or the whole Me Too movement. What's that about? I know it's about a success object thinking that he's entitled. So I think that's where it is. It is conditional. Um, remember that movie, Private Ryan? Mm. The mm -hmm. very, very end of Private Ryan, that very good man, the good man from the movie, you know, is standing at some sort of a graveyard. I can't remember. I can't get a clearer picture of it now. But he's basically asking, you know, do you think I was a good man? Right. Was I worth the death of the others? Uh, yeah. yeah. Do you think I'm good? Mm. You know, I mean, if that's not a child's voice. Right. Mm. <laughs> Shit. You know, looking for, mm -hmm. you, know, am, you know, is there any hope of me being loved? Because it's all conditional. And love's not conditional. And as long as they hooked up, it's not, it's not about love. Right. But even thinking about saving Private Ryan and saying, am I lovable after invading Normandy, right? Because that's what the movie's about, right? The, right. Uh, it's, it's, it's like not the best memory of work, <laughs> <laughs> Jenny. I feel like it's this um, it's really dangerous slope to say, oh, I'm only lovable if I do X, Y, and Z. Right. And part of that is this uh, this engagement in uh, military forces to say, okay, well, now I'm lovable because I've done this or because I've served my country. And what does it look like when we don't follow those tropes of manhood? Are we still lovable um, if we don't fit into the familial understanding of what being success is or being a success object? But listen to the question you're answering or asking. You're making it conditional. You're saying, you're, you're, I think what you're asking is, is there any way out of the conditionality? Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Well, and part of the way out is just to realize if it's conditional, it isn't about love. <laughs> Which is why in Breakthrough, we gave them, you know, here's, here's a functional definition of love. When you're doing these five things, you're being loving. And none of them are conditional. You know, when you're accepting someone, appreciating them, you know, being affectionate, um, being allowing, being appreciative. All those, when you're doing those, engaged in those behaviors, you're being loving. That's what being loving is. But they needed something that concrete. But it's a wonderful question. I mean, I mean, it's a it's a beautiful question. Is there any hope of it ever being unconditional enough for me to know that I am loved, loving, and lovable? Where does or how does forgiveness work? Um, join into the the work of being loved, loving, and lovable. So I feel like I, I'm thinking of two different ways. There's either this like inner child work and kind of shadow work that comes up, but then there's also uh, sometimes just writing an open letter to your parents. You don't even have to send it. My mom would do that all the time. Just try to write something, get it out of your system. Um, but where does that forgiveness come in and what does that look like in, in our reparative work? Um, you have forgiveness will come naturally when you have honored the breadth and depth of your pain and anger about what happened. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, it's a ripoff. And you know what I'm saying? You don't have to do that with your parents or whoever the offender was. But for, your, for ourselves, we have to honor the depth of our pain and anger, and then it will flip. Are there any um, kind of like breadcrumbs or indicators that it's about to flip? Um, I think our willingness to be uh, ruthlessly honest with ourselves about the pain and the anger. Can you think about what that person did to you 
without feeling any pain, without honestly saying you don't feel any more pain than anger. If we do, we have to honor it. Otherwise, it's self-abuse. I'm forgiving you, so I'll be a good person. Or they'll accept me in the 12-step program. I mean, I saw that so many times when people, I'm, I'm not objecting to 12-step programs or the great parts of 12-step programs, but so many people would come in to break through from 12-step program. Oh, I gave my parents a long time ago lie that feels so tricky because mm. i can i can see i i it, it, it i'm like being recalled into trying to support people and asking them if something had resolved and they kept saying yes 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 but it was this i actually don't want to touch that box because that is pandora's box and the second we touch that things are going to unravel in a really dangerous way. And I think that uh, that's something that I've experienced a lot with the spillway is, oh, no, 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 no. We just don't talk about race. Just don't talk about it. I don't want to touch that. And so I'm not racist. I I don't see color, actually. <laughs> right? And because of that, I don't have any problems. And I think about that in terms of forgiveness because someone... And maybe that's what colorblind racism is to, to a certain extent. They've forgiven themselves prematurely in this racial contract. They've forgiven themselves in something they couldn't forgive themselves in because they didn't have the authority or the responsibility to do that. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people are profoundly ignorant about the history. Do you think that there's more... Uh, education or relation needed in the racism conversation and ending of racism? Both. Both? Yeah. Mm -hmm. I agree. Um, we are <laughs> two minutes to close. And so, Fred, I just want to, uh, you, you very literally have this microphone in front of you, um, but if you wanted to talk to white people directly, if you wanted to have an open and vulnerable, authentic moment with white people, as if we haven't been having that for the past 45 minutes, <laughs> what do you uh, want to tell to the person who is going on a walk right now or doing the laundry or just sitting there in traffic, listening to the podcast? What do you need them to know right now? I think I would ask them a question. I would just ask them, can you access the truth of your own preciousness? And that's the starting place for the discussion. Can you access that? And if you can access that, that place, can you stay there? Can you use it as a starting place to from which to connect to all of life and from which and from which to take a look at where you put your attention with other humans so i'd use that as a place to start change starts with understanding your own preciousness i know like i can't like that's when i was like like i just even now like i'm i can't like i understanding your own preciousness fuck fred where have you been <laughs> <sighs> for me preciousness like i can't even go there yet i don't even know what that means in terms of myself, like I can't even. Yeah, I feel like that's that's my homework this week, trying to figure out why I'm precious. Yeah. Like really like, sitting on that. I mean, not even why you are, you just are. 
fuck you're right that's that's what fred was saying that's why it's so fucking crazy because fred's like no no there's no why can you just see that you are and i'm like no you're right thank you for that reminder i forgot yeah because I'm, i'm i'm so conditioned on the conditional i am so predisposed to have to to have to do to receive that it's not just like oh no and even when I was like oh so like when you meet a man like he's inherently what oh lovable I know I'm sorry what what is he <laughs> also I don't know how comfortable you feel talking about this but what? you were raised in that what yeah. Fred's talking about like that's not your reality now in terms of like how you identify and the life you're living but you were raised in what Fred was fucking talking about like all of that was what you were mired in Mm -hmm. and I think that that's when Fred was talking about the 12-step program and saying that people come in oh no I forgave my parents years ago I think about so much therapy that I have done Mm -hmm. and been in and engaged in and like really committed to Mm -hmm. over the past couple of decades uh that I was like oh yeah no I feel like I've healed from a lot of this um and then in comes Fred being Fred (laughs) it's like you're lying Guess what, and not Lauren? and even when he says that it's not like he's not like you're a liar he's just like yeah. no you're but you're lying right i yeah. love you and you're lying right oh my god because fred is so fucking affirming i love you and you're lying and you're lying god damn it <laughs> yeah you that's what i think we should do that for each other this week hmm like just like, hey, just popping in to reaffirm your preciousness for no reason other than that you right. exist and you are precious. God. I like I that. can't like every time I like get misty, like I there's like a knot right here. I like <laughs> I just keep smiling. There's so much like so tension in my cheekbones. Hurts yeah. right here. Yeah. Like just here because. I mean, where, why is this person not everywhere in the world? Like, I just, like, I'm like, what the fuck have I been doing with my time when there are people like Fred in the world? How precious. What if, to- oh my God, what if preciousness became like a tagline from the spillway or like for the spillway? You're precious. what if we did that at the end we told each other we were precious and then we told the audience or something like that yeah jenny you're precious you're so fucking precious i guess what 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 you're precious you're precious we're precious everyone's precious